Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot known locally as the February Room is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. You know, steelhead flies have always been my favorite patterns to uh, to create at the vice. Um, with with steelhead flies, the door to creativity is wide open, and the possibilities are endless. Um, now, you know, in reality, with steelhead fly tying, the anticipation often outweighs the outcome. I've tied hundreds of steelhead flies myself and caught fish on relatively few. Um, yet effective steelhead patterns uh, exhibit uh, certain qualities, and today's guest certainly understands this, and I'm looking forward to picking his brain. Scott Crosby, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Justin. Man, it's good to talk to you tonight. Uh, appreciate you taking the time. Before we dive into uh, to who you are and what you do, I know you've been fishing a long time, and do you have a story teed up you can share with us? Yeah, I sure do. Um, it actually... Happened on my very first uh, fishing trip when I was just a, a young shaver. And um, 
I lived in Detroit, Michigan, and uh, my mom and dad really weren't uh, outdoorsy people, but they decided one day that they wanted to rent a cottage on uh, a lake. I couldn't even tell you the name of the lake. And so they decided they were going to go there that weekend, and we packed up in the car, and I think I was five years old at the time. I can't remember. And we got there, and they started unpacking. Well, being the little young, curious lad that I was, who really never been out of the city limits of Detroit, I was intrigued by this thing called the lake, which <laughs> I probably never seen one in my life. And so I uh, decided I was going to go on my own little adventure. Well, they unloaded the car. Well, they didn't know that I was going to go on my own little adventure, <laughs> and. I uh, remember meeting this man who had this long pole in his hand and a piece of line tied to the end of it and this coffee can sitting next to a five-gallon bucket. And uh, being five years old and not knowing better to really talk to strangers, I walked right up to him and said, hi. And he said, hello there. And... I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm fishing. And I said, what's that? And he kind of looked curiously at me. He goes, you don't know what fishing is? And I said, no, sir, I, I don't know. He said, stand right there and watch us for a minute. And uh, he put a, he reached in that coffee can. And he, at the time, I didn't know what a night crawler was. And he picked in that can. And he grabbed himself a night crawler. And he pinched off a piece about an inch long. He threw it on that hook, which I didn't know that was either. He, he flipped her out in the water and that had a bobber on and I didn't know what that was either and it went down and he lifted it up and lo and behold he had a fish in his hand and I was like he goes that's fishing <laughs> and I said I said can I try and he said sure come on over here I can't remember the man's name but I can re I can picture his face and, and what I'm telling you like it was yesterday to me such a great memory wow and and two hours later, after they were looking for me, they found me with this guy, and we had a bucket full of bluegills. Just you couldn't believe it. And how Never old? How old were you? Five. Wow. So, and that was so. Obviously, your dad wasn't much of an angler. No, not <laughs> he. It was my stepdad, and he was a photographer. I don't think I ever saw a fishing rod or a gun in his hand ever. Gotcha. So from that from that first experience, um, that that lit the fire, huh? It did. It lit the fire big time. I was so curious, and it was so fun. That's awesome. Um, at, at what point did you leave Michigan and and move out west? Yeah. So that's um. Wow. There's a lot that went on between then and there. I had uh, I lived in Michigan my whole entire life. I joined the army. I was in the army for eight years. I got out of the army. I was married. I went back to Michigan where I was from. Unfortunately, I went through a horrible divorce. Um, ended up in Florida with my sister. Met this wonderful young lady named Heidi Anderson uh, down in uh, Florida who was from Oregon. And uh, so I had always wanted to go to Oregon uh, after I got older in life, um, just intrigued me, the pictures and the beauty and the fishing and sure. But, uh, so, uh, we ended up, uh, getting married in Florida. We stayed there for two years. And then I said, you know what, we need to, we need to get you back home 
to Oregon closer to your family. So, <laughs> Which you had you had an ulterior uh, motive there, right? <laughs> I had, yes, I had no problem going to Oregon because uh, I was a little tired of, of Florida just from the standpoint of it was great fishing, but the hunting, yeah, I didn't right. have any hunting there. And uh, so we packed up and here we are in Oregon. We've been married 19 years now. And so you've you've been living in Oregon for almost 20 years, roughly? Uh, six, this will be our 17th year here at this house. So yeah, almost 20 years in Oregon. Yep. Cool. And you live down near the Rogue River, um, in Southern Oregon, which is surrounded by some amazing fisheries. Um, when you, when you first ended up there, uh, did you think you'd died and gone to heaven? When it came to the salmon and steelhead, I did my research on the river. So I kind of knew what I was up against and I knew the reputation that the Rogue had throughout the world actually. And, um, so yeah, I was very pleased to be here. I can tell you that. I bet. I bet. Um, and so, you know, as, as kind of a newbie in Oregon, um, it can be kind of daunting trying to figure out how to catch salmon and steelhead, steelhead in particular. Did you, did you meet a group of, uh, of anglers that kind of took you in or did you just kind of figure it out on your own? Or what was that process like? You know, when I, when I first got here, um, actually, before we even moved here, there was a there was a gentleman named Jerry James. He's no longer with us, but he was a very popular fly tire in the community who had happened to um, uh, go to church with Heidi um, when she was younger, and she, he became fond of a family friend of the, you know, just very fond of uh, Heidi's family and Heidi. And um, so when we came out here on vacation, uh, I was going to ask her dad for her hand in marriage. And we went over to talk to Jerry about where should we fish while we're out here. And he gave me a couple hints. And one of the things he told me was to read this particular book about Oregon uh, waters. And uh, I still have the book here. And basically what it did is it highlighted all the main uh, waterways of Oregon and told you where to go and what to do. So I, I kind of had a, a little bit of help with where to look to do my research, but then it was all my research and all my, you know, uh, having to spend time, um, acting upon what I found. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Um, it's, it's daunting to, you know, starting off with just a guidebook doesn't, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't put you on the fish necessarily. You got to figure a lot of stuff out, and if you don't have, you uh, certainly do. If you yes, don't I have someone, someone to teach you that, it's uh, yep. It's uh, that's it's not an easy, it's not an easy thing to decipher, in my opinion, right. for salmon and steelhead in particular. Like there's, yeah, a pretty big learning curve. What happened was, after a bit of uh, being here in Oregon, I was working for a um, gas line piping company. They laid me off because of uh, hard times, and I ended up um, going down to Sportsman's Warehouse one day about 15 years ago, and I noticed the store manager was struggling trying to put tackle boxes away, and I said, you guys need some help around here. He goes, yeah, we do. You want a job? And I said, yeah, I'll be here in the morning, and that's how I got my job at Sportsman's Warehouse, and when I hit the Sportsman's Warehouse, boy, oh boy, did the contacts and the fishing stories and all the information and intel started coming in big time. I started meeting people and started getting into the inner circles of some communities that were really good. Um, I 
Um, I'm really good friends with John Hazlett and Dax Massed and I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those, tro- those so, troublemakers. <laughs> yeah. That, you know, those guys know where the fish are. Oh, and they're, they they're fantastic. Fish. They're a riot. Yes. They're a riot to hang out with and they're damn good anglers. Yes. Well, that's, that's really cool, Scott. When I first moved to Missoula, my first job was working in the fishing department at Sportsman's Warehouse. And uh, it's the best first job I could have gotten when I moved here. The same experience you had, I'm sure. The people were super friendly, super knowledgeable. And um, over the course of two years, I learned what would have taken me probably 15 on my own, 15 or 20. Yeah, yeah. Um, in very, terms very of, good of point. where to yes. go hunting and fishing. Yeah. Cool. Do you still work at Sportsman's Warehouse? I sure do. Do you really? Okay. Awesome. Wow. Yeah. You know, that's it's a good company to work for. A lot of the same a lot of the same people that I worked with, you know, back in 2006 or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, they're still there. Uh the the fishing manager's still there, the hunting manager's still there. One of the guys that uh used to be one of the department managers is now the store manager and um uh-huh. yeah, it's a good outfit. Awesome. It's a good outfit and cool. And, and in addition to, to that, uh, that career, you, um, you create, uh, some really, really gorgeous looking steelhead patterns, flies and, uh, and lures as well. Right. Can you tell me a little bit about that side business you have? Yeah, sure. Thank you very much. I appreciate you uh, saying that. Um, many years ago, my mom, she collected antiques and her one of her favorite things to do was take uh, a $50 bill and go down to an auction and see what she could turn around and buy antiques. Well, one day she went to an auction and she um, purchased this uh, wooden 45 record box that she thought had a bunch of possibilities of good 45 records that she could turn around and make money on. Well, she opened it up and it was a flight tying kit. And she said, I know, who to give, okay. I know who to give this to. And uh, so I still have most of everything in that kit that uh, was original. And um, it's pretty archaic. But uh, I, I made an attempt to tie my first fly. And that's been 25, 30 years ago. Not too long ago, I guess. But um, uh, it, just, it just went uphill from there. Um, I really enjoy... The creativity part of it, it's my um, happy place where when I, when the world in the crazy world in which we live uh, gets a little hairy for me, I just go and tie flies and that's where I can drink coffee and relax. Right. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So are there specific patterns that uh, people commission you to tie for them or, um, you know, how does, how does your business work? Right. Okay. So that's a really good question too, because, you know, in fly tying, there's so many genres of uh, style that you can be a part of. Um, You can be a trout guy and specialize in dries, or you can be, you know, a traditional spay guy and tie the, you know, the real intricate um, spay flies. Um, I became friends through uh, a seminar I went to at um, Ashland Fly Shop with Jerry French. And I also became really good friends 
with Jay Nicholas, and I also became friends with Jason Osborne, the owner of the Portland Fly Shop. And those three guys, including Hazlett and um, a few others, were my mentors in teaching me the other side of uh, spay fishing flies. And basically for me, I specialize in intruders and single station flies such as the hobo spay or maybe even some would consider, I don't know if you'd consider it a single station, but the, the like the dirty hoe um, streamer style um, steelhead flies. That's my favorites to tie. I can tie them all. There's nothing I can't tie. I, if you show me a fly, I can, I can sit down and tie it. It doesn't matter what it is. E- even the, you know, married wings on the traditional fly tying or uh, space stuff. Um, but, um, my specialty, I love to tie intruders. I'm just an intruder freak. Cool. And when you say single station um, for the audience, what do you mean by that? Right. So uh, an intruder has got a front station and then a shank in between to a rear station that by definition, that's a true intruder as to where like a hobo spay is just um, a shank with a a single station on it, a single um, wrapping of your materials. To when if you held an intruder up against a hobo spay, you would see definitely two, a front and a back. And on a hobo spay, you'd only see a front. So, and on on your patterns, do you tie these on tubes? Then are you are you a, a primarily a tube tire? Or there's so many different ways to design um, intruders, and you know, a lot of folks do it differently. Hazlet uses. Uh, what is that power pro stuff? You know, that other tire you've got down there that uh, guides on the Smith, you know, he likes to run coated wire. Everybody's got a little bit uh, different style of, of building them. How do you build yours, Scott? Right. So um, you're absolutely correct. There's really three um, avenues that you can tie your steelhead flies on either a hook, a shank, or a tube. I do, uh, I do all three. Um, my smaller traditional stuff are like trout spay and, um, the half pounders here on the rogue river. I tie on hooks. I specialize in shanks. It's my favorite. I would prefer a shank over a tube, but I also tie tubes as well. Um, it just really is a personal preference. There's a lot of personal preference involved. And then when it comes to, um, you mentioned the different, uh, ways to attach a hook to, to the flies, whether it be wire or um, that uh, Hazel likes to use the 30-pound um, Berkeley Fireline. Yeah, 30-pound Power Pro, right? It's not Power Pro. It's Berkeley Crystal Fireline. Fireline. Thank you. That's right. I knew yeah. I was. I knew I was wrong. Yeah, Fireline. And there's That's a reason. Right. There really is a reason for it, Justin. It's it's so that um, it's stiff, and your hook is in a different. A definitely a better position to instead of on power pro the only way your hook is going to be right directly behind your um fly is if you have some pretty decent current to hold it up as to where that um crystal fire line holds it in a position to do so and then jerry french has the um tube uh uh if you attach a piece of tubing to the back side of your um shank you can hold that hook in a better position right yeah i've seen that yeah that's pretty pretty cool too right right have you uh rich zellman was the guy i was trying to think of do you know rich zellman 
No, I'm not familiar with him. Oh, he guides on the Smith. Um, Hazlett knows him, but um, he ties a really cool intruder. Um, if you ever, uh, if you ever get a chance to look at one of his bugs, yeah, they're he he puts some time into them. They're gorgeous, but they're heavy for the Smith, right? So, uh-huh. um, you know, I, I nicknamed, uh, one he gave me, uh, the tendonitis <laughs> and, uh, on, on, on that note, uh, what, uh, what qualities, uh, do you think a good winter steelhead fly has in terms of, um, both fish attracting qualities and, and presentation qualities, um, or castability, however you want to term that. Right. Absolutely. Well, I think first first and foremost is, and Jerry French, who was my mentor and my main teacher uh, on how to tie an intruder and no better teacher in the world than to have him. Um, less is more is his motto. And so the first thing is castability. If you can't cast it to where you need to, where the fish are, then it's useless. You don't want to be casting half wet socks or half a chicken. You know, it just doesn't work. Um, and then the other qualities and that I like to uh, put into my flies is the gentleman, Jerry James, that I mentioned earlier in the interview. Um, he told me one time, he said, Scott, make sure you tie your flies like a tank because your reputation will be ruined if they fall apart. And it only takes one or two flies and people talking. And he said, build them like a tank. So I really make sure that, one, they're not going to come apart. But some of the qualities and traits that um, Jerry instilled in me is the fact that in a composite loop, which is a certain style of tying your materials and attaching them to the shank, you've got to have them be translucent. And they must have a large profile at the same time. So how does one take less material to make a bigger profile well it's all done in the composite loop and how you support it underneath it and with having the light go through it and being translucent what that does is it create it makes it look like it's alive and that is the trigger Hmm. because you got to understand these flies you don't tie them to look good for me and you you tie them to look good to the fish when it's wet and in the water And you're trying to trigger that fish into eating that fly, whether it be out of reaction or hunger. Mm -hmm. Do you have any uh, examples of that composite loop on YouTube or anywhere that that folks could go look at? Yeah, I do. I have on my Facebook page is probably the best place or my Instagram. Uh, My Instagram is fish for him first at, uh, um, and then, uh, my, uh, Facebook would just be Scott Crosby, but you'll find pictures there. And I pretty much don't tie an intruder without a composite loop. I did the other night cause I was trying some prototype, uh, materials that didn't require feathers, but I, the composite loop is where it's at. And I have plenty of, uh, pictures to look at on my social media for those. Awesome. Can you explain that composite loop one more time to me, please? Absolutely. The composite loop is a, it's basically a fancy man's dubbing loop. So if you were to be tying a fly and you made a dubbing loop and all you did is stick in 
it dubbing, then hence it's a dubbing loop. But a composite loop is made of it's it can it's composed of different materials. I have um, dubbing in it. I have ostrich uh, feathers in it. I could potentially have flash in it. Um, there's all kinds of different materials uh, that you can add to it. That when you spin it up and you pick it out, it just lays out beautifully uh, when you go to wrap it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very uniform way to, to lay material. Also, and that's going to achieve that strong way to it's a strong way to do it. Yeah, uh, they don't. It doesn't break that way. They stay together longer. It's it's just a really good way to build a fly. There you go, and that it also creates that translucent that translucence that you mentioned. Yes. Yeah, it kind of swims in the water. It traps kind of air bubbles. Um, you know. It, it kind of like similar to what um, what uh, a polar hair fiber does. Yes. Yep. Gotcha. Cool. Thank you for explaining that. That's um, that uh, that's an interesting tidbit that I, I you know don't think a lot of folks know about. Is yeah. I also have a YouTube channel and I have a pretty extensive um, couple um, recordings on uh, or videos. I mean uh, on uh, how to make them. How to do, how to go about doing the composite loop? Awesome, and we, and we can find those if we just go to YouTube and type in Scott yeah. Crosby fly tying. I'm sure. Yeah, just Scott Crosby will get you there. Okay, great, um, awesome. And then um, tell me about your uh, your lure uh, your lure designs as well, because you do you know you build lures. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, please. So I have a good friend that I work with at Sportsman's Warehouse. His name is Colby Pearson, and he is on the Professional Apex Tour here on the West Coast. He's a professional angler. He may be, in my opinion, I think he's the premier um, uh, go-to guy on swim baits. He is just an absolute um, wealth of treasure, of just plethora of knowledge when it comes to the swim bait side of things. On top of that, he knows his everything there is to know about bass fishing really good guy well anyway in working with him and following him and encouraging him in his pro status he kind of lit a fire in me that i kind of let go of many years ago and that was the aspiration to become a bass fisherman uh i fished uh the michigan bass federation circuit for many years um i had aspirations of going professional but due to um just some things in life that didn't work out uh, it didn't happen for me, but I kind of went away from it and just went to the fly fishing world uh, and spay world and stuck with the salmon and steelhead. And I was okay with it. I knew what I, I knew a lot about bass fishing, but Colby recently lit a fire in me that made me want to start to build lures. And in part of building the lures, you have to learn how to paint them. So I made an investment in some what they call blanks, and I started painting these blanks um, to sell. And uh, then what happened was um, Colby encouraged me to um, build and make my own bait that I could call my own. And then what you do is you turn around and you make a mold of that bait and then you pour resin baits out of that mold and then you paint the resin baits. And really the money that can be made from your own custom bait is much more than just going and buying 
cheap Chinese blanks and painting them. So right now my business has taken a little bit of a, a in the beginning I was painting these blanks and had lots of uh, Chinese blanks that I was painting and selling, but now I'm going to jump into it feet first with uh, my own style and my own baits. And then I'm going to paint them and see what happens there. But um, it's a, uh, it's still kind of in the beginning stages of that part of my business, but I really, really enjoy the painting part of it. It's um, it's a very creative, fun thing to do. Um, I've always wanted to be uh, kind of get the airbrush thing down as a young man and in my uh, entire life, and I never did it. And I finally sat down and said, "I'm going to teach myself how to do this." And lo and behold, I. I'm pretty good at tying an intruder and I'm pretty good at painting a bait. Man, I, I'm looking at these right now on your Instagram account, which is fish for fish number four, him first with yep. that's one ST. So fish Correct. for him first. And right. um, these are, these are just beautiful. Um, and, and the intruders, the intruders are amazing too. Um so, folks, uh, I implore you to go to Fish for Him first on Instagram and look at uh, look at Scott's work here. Whether you're a fly angler, a lure angler, or just appreciate um, art and um, and custom made uh, flies and baits, you've got to see this stuff. It is super cool. The name of my company is um, Inner Sanctum Custom Flies, and I got that from George Cook. Oh yes, George Cook. You you bet. Uh, Inner Sanctum Custom Flies. Yep, Inner Sanctum Custom Flies and Lures. And and your business is all basically just word of mouth, right? Like, but somebody could pop on here to Instagram and message you and and order some flies or order some lures from you. Correct. Yep. Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.